Welcome to UX Radio, the podcast that generates collaborative discussion about information architecture, user experience, and design. Lara's guest today is Marianne Sweeney, who's a well-known search information architect, SEO, and user experience designer. Many moons ago, she started advocating the relationship between information architecture, user experience, and search engines. Her charming wit and intellect make her a sought-after speaker at many conferences, and this interview tells the story of how she defines her path with an insatiable desire to learn and create meaning. But I want to start really early. Okay. Like, tell me about growing up and like where your love of technology started. You know, it never really started. So growing up, I was a complete technophobe. You know, we did not have a lot of machines. We were uh, one of the, you know, when we got a color television, the joke in the neighborhood was, if you want to see a purple cow, go to the Sweeney house, because no one could adjust the color in in our house. Uh, So my father loved music, and we did have some pretty elaborate music systems, but that wasn't it. And I went to college, you know, I had the manual typewriter like anyone else, and then went down to Los Angeles. And it was in Los Angeles in the early 80s. I worked for uh, an independent producer by the name of Chris Knight, and he was part of the Knight Publishing Fortune. And so in like 85, I want to say about 85, 86, we all had the huge IBMs, you know, that you could literally like stop a rhino with these things. They were ginormous. Uh, And each one in the office, Chris and I and our assistant had one. And I distinctly remember, it's all in DOS, I distinctly remember uh, saying, you know, that I was going to master Microsoft Word. And so I take the huge, literally, New Manhattan phone book size instructional manual uh, into my office, and as our assistant at that time would tell the story, uh, the level of adult language, the volume rises the longer I'm in there with the manual. Like she can hear me at first, I'm muttering to myself, and then I'm swearing openly, as only someone who has gone to an all-girl Catholic high school for four years can swear. And uh, it culminates with me throwing the manual out the door where it splattered against the wall and took out um, one of the plants that was resting on the side. I struggled through DOS, always struggled through DOS. I, I got a laptop, again, a ginormous uh, Toshiba laptop that had, was very innovative because it didn't have the gray text on the black background. It had uh, taupe text on the brown background. Uh, and I managed to write a split, uh, screenplay using uh, software called Scriptware, where the software developer was the support system. And after my fourth phone call, uh, told me basically that I was too stupid to own his software and that I really shouldn't, shouldn't be using it. So I was a complete technophobe. Uh, in the early 90s, I left the film business and came to back to Seattle where shockingly enough, there was really no job market for somebody whose core skills were reading and eating out for a living. Uh, So I kind of had to transition back. And at that time, we're now in the early 90s, like 95, I worked as a creative director for a commercial production company for two years. And then that ended. Uh, So I thought, what can I do? And the CD-ROM industry was just starting to take off and they had what they called these role-playing games. They were very interested in women role-playing games, Nancy Drew and all of that, for girls. And I said, well, and they were hiring people from Hollywood. And I went, this, 
you know, this technology thing, there might be something to it. But I better know the landscape, which is what I did when I went into film. I went to the American Film Institute for um, nine months to learn the language and the landscape of filmmaking. So I went to the University of Washington, had a great program. Uh, it was a certificate program in software product management. And they literally took you through the cycles of design, development, um, user assistance, you know, project management, whatever. And by the time I got out, the CD-ROM industry had wised up that basically the film people were irresponsible charlatans who were bleeding them dry with these enormous expenses. And they stopped hiring us. So uh, I, you know, put on my big girl pants and I went and got a job as a gopher. I used to call myself the Radar O'Reilly uh, for a startup that was doing advertising software. So it was, it was literally a great opportunity for me to put my degree into, or my certificate into force. And it, it, we developed, uh, it was called uh, Media Passage. And what they did was they took all of the newspaper rates for the, all of the daily newspapers in the country, and then weekly, and they entered them into a database that uh, had Excel as a top layer so that media planners could go and say, I want literally, our first one was Philip Morris. Remember, they won some big lawsuit. And we placed a full page ad in all 3,000 or whatever daily newspapers on Sunday. And they were able to estimate the cost of the space. So you could go in and you could say, I want a full page ad, top 10 DMAs, top newspaper, and it would calculate and it would say that's going to cost you $50,000. So that was a great, great opportunity and I stayed there for a few years. Uh, I left when they wouldn't give me the website. They had started a website, but they decided the 25-year-old graduate from Florida State University was a better candidate, so I left. and. Uh, went into information architecture and in 1999 started with Microsoft as a web producer. And that's when I really had to sort of knuckle down and learn some code, you know, not HTML. I had uh, JavaScript at one time, XML. I would cruise job descriptions and I would say, what are they looking for? What? And that told me what I needed. And uh, I had hooked up with a there was a, uh, an online instruction company called Digital Think, and they were offering their courses for free if you would beta test them. So that's what I did. And then I, was, I stayed at Microsoft for seven years. So what um, correlations have you made between film and technology? You know, it's, it's both about organization and relationships. So in the film business, what I had to do was um, have the capacity to see beyond the page, beyond the pitch. Uh, I would go to New York twice a year and meet with publishers. I was reading books a year before they came out. But the idea was to be able to construct one narrative in another medium. So whether it was somebody telling me a story or you know a, a manuscript or a magazine that, uh, that, that I needed the capacity to visualize that uh, in in what was a visual medium. And it's the same here. I run into clients all of the time that talk about, you know, I want to take what I have in reality and put it in virtual reality. And it's not a direct translation. 
Uh, when I was working at MGM, uh, after leaving AFI, one of my jobs was as the assistant story editor for MGM. And one of the senior executives, Eileen Maisel, got very upset because we rejected uh, this long, long form book that she wanted to buy as a film. And her response was, you know, if Gone with the Wind came in now, you would say it's a miniseries. And my response was, yes, it would have been better as a miniseries. That what you have in the film is not a lesser film, but it's 10% of the movie. So, you know, if you want to tell that complete story, then the long form is better. Uh, Star Wars came out in uh, the late 70s, so I think mm -hmm. it was 77. And uh, that was the first sort of introduction of Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey. That wasn't ubiquitous then. Well, on Thursday, uh, or on Friday, I asked a question during the keynote because Doug Bowman, when he left uh, Google as head of design, he said the reason he left was that uh, data-driven designs uh, do not, basically, uh, you know, paraphrasing, do not accommodate innovation because there's no data to support the innovative mm -hmm. concept. So yes, in Hollywood you had certain filmmakers who were breaking the convention, and that was an extraordinary event. And then you would have the series of, I want something like Fatal Attraction. So we don't, you know, when I was there, and this is the 80s, when Fatal Attraction came out, was being submitted, people were like, no one wants to go see this movie, it's Murder, She Wrote, or whatever. It takes a filmmaker to say, to impart a vision, that then can then be sold for whatever reason that is normally financial. And an example uh, I would always use when I was doing um, seminars on screenwriting is, I was at United Artists when they passed on Witness. I was at um, MGM when they passed on Witness. I was at Kings Road Production when they passed on Witness twice. And everyone in all of those instances read the script and said, this is a great movie. No one's going to go see it. No one wants to see a movie about the Amish. Uh, it took a David Kirkpatrick, who was a D-boy at Paramount, to, to advocate. And he went uh, to Peter Weir, who had just done Picnic at Hanging Rock and was sort of the flavor of the month at Hollywood. Everyone wanted to do a project with Peter Weir. So David's uh, smartness was that he back-ended. He didn't say, I'm going to give it to the studio and have them give it to a director. He packaged the film. He went to Peter Weir, and he said, and Peter Weir said, I want to make this movie. And so Paramount goes, okay, you know, whatever. And they get a cast, and they went to Harrison Ford, who had done Star Wars and was getting all of these space cowboy movies. And he, want, he fancies himself a serious actor. So he signed on for scale. Kelly McGillis had never made a movie before. There are, Danny Glover was completely unknown. There are no other stars in that movie. They made it for whatever, 10 million, something like that. And it, the movie has grossed hundreds of millions of dollars because somebody says, not only do I have a vision that accommodates the medium where I'm working, but I'm also adding some magical thinking. And I believe that this will do well. Certainly content strategy fits into that. When I was at Microsoft, I was the producer on the SQL Server product site, which is their big database uh, product. And, the, and uh, they had a trial software page. And on the trial software page, there was one call to action, and that was get the trial software. 
Uh, and then the other call to action was um, buy it. And I thought, this is weird. Uh, first of all, I don't want to buy it because uh, I haven't tried it yet. And I'm kind of not incentivized to try it. Uh, so I, I started thinking uh, in terms of what I now call a relational content model. And that is, we can't just think of the customer or the user. I'm with Edward Tufte. There are only two industries that call their customers users, and that's technology and drugs. So uh, you cannot think of the customer in terms of where they are. You have to think of the customer in a continuum. Where did they come from and where would they want to go? You should never put your customer in a locked room, you know, like let them walk into a door and have no avenue out but where they came because that's what they'll take. And that's not what you want. You want them to go through. You want them to um, enter into what uh, in the pointy-headed information world is called a berry-picking information model of, I'm here to get something, but you know, that looks very interesting. I think I'm gonna go over there and look at that and I'll come back and I will remember that piece of information over there, that shiny object. So the relational content model for SQL Server was, I'm at the trial software, Where? what would I want to know? Well, I'd want to know how to uninstall it. Um, I would want to know if there's online administration help. I'd want to know um, if MSDN has anything that will help me develop custom uh, functionality uh, that meets my specific needs. Uh, and I'd want to know what, what sort of support uh, will be available to me, you know, in terms of administering it. So I went to MS Press, found a great online administration guide and also one that's available in the stores at the time because we were buying books then. Uh, I went to MSDN and found a developer center that was for SQL Server. I went to the support site and found how to uninstall and also how to upgrade uh, the trial edition and, uh, and put those links on the page. So how to buy disappears, that's in the global nav. You have download the trial edition and then you have all of this support. Sure. And the traffic to those pages went up 30 to 300 percent. Wow. So there was no data to support mm -hmm. my theory, but there was data that would validate it. And I think that's where you look is uh, magical thinking is by nature uh, new and unique and unsupported. But you can measure. And to me, that's where we, as user experience people, sort of fall down, is that we don't frame what we do in terms of the customer, who is our stakeholder, who's paying. That is, you're going to make more money. And I'm going to show you how you're going to make more money. If you change your nav, you're going to make more money, and this is how we're going to measure. And it's, it's not just about their needs and their goals, it's their desires right. and what will delight them. Exactly. But we need to say, we need to be able at some juncture to say, you're going to make more money. So one of the things I've done at Portent, where I now work, is I created a user experience dashboard on Google Analytics that looks at, you know, social content and then experience. And that's how Google is looking at it now. How engaged are your customers? How good is your content? And then what is the quality of your site? So, how, you know, per visit, per unique visitor, how many social actions? Where are the social actions taking place? What are the channels? This is all information that both user experience designers and 
you know, visual designers and content strategists can use to validate their work in a tangible way. And to see where people are not going yes. and where you want them to go yes. and discover why and then improve it. And that's absolute magic. Avinash Kosick, who is a, a very big um, analytics guy, he works at Google. He has a fantastic blog called Occam's Razor, which I would strongly recommend everybody read. And <clears throat> he did... Um, a post about two graphs that make a difference, which I use in my workshop. And I use with clients too. And the first graph is, where's your content by directory? You know, you have five pages in utility, you have 20 pages in, in um, about, you have 150 pages in press releases. And then the second graph is, where are your customers going? And it's dramatic. I mean, I showed one client, you have 500 press releases and all of your customers are going over here to about your product. You need to start spending more time over there. You need to fix the content over there. Yeah, if you know how to leverage the analytics, you can be extremely successful. Exactly. And we need to know that as much as we need to know about berry picking and mental models and semantics and all of that, we need to incorporate analytics uh, and as someone said, development. Uh, so I appreciate working in a company that is um, intimate enough that I'm close to developers where I can walk over and say, you know, I want to do, we're working in Magento, which is this really um, elaborate uh, e-commerce system, and I want to do a mega menu. Can I do that? What are the templates? Uh, and, you know, oftentimes they've said, you can't do that. It's going to be a lot of money. You know, there's a lot of custom dev there. Ding, wrong answer, let's go back to the drawing board. Tell me about your customer feedback analysis methodology. I, you know, I don't have a particular customer feedback methodology. Uh, I've used a survey, it would be my favorite anonymous survey in terms of my workshops, uh, and also uh, with internal designs that I've done. So I redesigned our intranet uh, prior to Portent, I worked for an agency called Ascentium, uh, and one of my passions there was enterprise search. I think we all work within companies where the internal search is just horrid, uh, and we can't understand uh, why that is. People invest a lot of money in very sophisticated products like SharePoint, which as I say is like Jessica Rabbit. It is not bad, it is just drawn that way. So uh, internal surveys, any anonymous uh, feedback mechanism like that is qu quite possibly the best that you will ever find. One, because an anonymity gives people license to be truthful, uh, even if it hurts. That's interesting, the, the anonymity of the thing. I mm -hmm. mean, I think about moderated user testing versus un moderated versus right. unmoderated and getting that really candid feedback. And there's nuances to both, and it seems like there's gotta be still something a little bit better. It's so hard because when you go into focus groups and when you go into one-on-one -on -one testing, and I, and I have been uh, an example of this, the subject is so eager to please. Yes. They're either eager to, to look smart or they're eager to please. And that influences uh, their participation. So I'm not saying that direct, you know, um, user testing isn't isn't useful, sure, and I've used sure. it. You know, uh, at Ascentium we used Moray, but for me, where I find it useful is when you know I've created a page, and dang, they're having a lot of trouble finding that button. 
you know, like, oh, I went to so much trouble on that navigation and they just went to the search box, dang, you know, is it the labels? So that sort of observation, you can pick some stuff up. But for me, and you know, anonymous surveys work the best in terms of feedback on one, the current state, and then two, uh, the design state. Right. Yeah, a lot of times we'll just say, we're not testing you, we're testing right. the system. So if something is confusing, that doesn't reflect on you, that reflects on the design. So we give an example mm -hmm. to put them at ease and, and really encourage them to be candid and truthful. But it's, it's so hard because a lot of times they are getting an incentive right. or they want it to be over quickly. Or they're just not at ease. I re there was a hilarious story about um, Barbara Steisen was coming in to re-record a bit of Yentl and one of the secretaries uh, in the office asked if she could watch. And Streisand's rumored response was, absolutely not, how would you like it if I watched you type? So even though we try and put them at ease, it is no fun having someone watch you work. I mean, you work differently, I do it too, when someone comes to ask me to do something, and then they keep standing there and I'm like, Buzz off, would you? You know, like I, I, I what? Okay, I guess. So, um, no matter how hard we try, they're not in the environment in which they will be using the product. So it's not a direct test. It's not a direct representation of their reactions. We just have to get as close as we can. You can, and there is no perfection in that. And right. you know, it's. I think I don't think we're ever going to develop the uh, ubiquitous software. You know, we look at Google's design now, the, the single search box, and that's being used pervasively. But what behavior studies have found is that type of interface and also the, the sort of overwhelming amount of data that Google collects so that they can create what is a personalized experience has made us stupid. We've become stupid searchers. 56% of the people construct bad queries. Why do you think that is? I think it's because we no longer, uh, we, are, we are no longer inquisitive, and we no longer uh, look at uh, search results with a sense of discernment. I just want an answer. I want to settle an argument. I want to find the paper. I want to make the point, or whatever. And so we are limiting ourselves to um, a very short view uh, very few people go to the second page. I think that it's, the studies have said um, less than 8%. Uh, I always go to like the second, third, and fourth page of the results. You find some really interesting stuff there. So that's part of it. We just are, you know, we're, we're digesting factoids. We're not really looking for an answer. A theory um, that was developed by Brenda Durvin at uh, Rutgers University, and it's called sense making. And she says that. She says, we all start out with an information need. Uh, and it's, and it's, the need is that we've encountered a gap in our knowledge base that we need to fill. And so we start out looking for ways to fill that. And we're basically constructing an understanding uh, that you know, it, it results in us finding out what we need to know. So that's kind of the pointy-headed view. Uh, and you're absolutely right, we do that, that, when, that I, whenever somebody goes to a search engine nine, you know, many times, they don't know what they don't know. And so they put a query in, it's like a fishing expedition, you know, I'm going to try this bait, 
and see what comes up. And based on what comes up, I'm going to change my query. I, be, I become smarter as I become as I query more. I believe that we're seeing uh, less and less of that, and part of it is because of the unique, the personalized experience. So Google believes in a quant in a in a quantitative self that you can be measured in terms of metrics of your behavior. And I do not subscribe to that. I say that, you know, it's environmental, it's, it's um, situational, it's uh, time, uh, you know, where I am in a particular point, how much time I have. So you're right. Um, and there, we now all see ourselves as information professionals. So I have a sister who's a psychotherapist, and she went to have her um, uh, legs waxed. And the person came in and said, I'm your whatever, skin therapist. And Maureen's response was, you know, I went to school for three years. <laughs> like, uh, and I had to pass a certification exam. So there's really only one therapist in the room, and it's me. But we're all so eager to, to sort of you know, say I don't need the help. The Seattle Public Library and many others, has a feature where you can talk to a librarian by chat at any time, 24 by 7. And I've done it where I'm like, I need to find this out. And I got some librarian in Ann Arbor. It was 11 o'clock Seattle time, through 2 in the morning, hers. And she was great. She pointed me to resources that Google would never have thought of. But my point being, we need to be more inquisitive. We need to be more discerning. And not only that. But we, meaning as I refer to them, the thought processing bipeds need to take back relevance. We need to take back what is determined to be relevant and not leave it to the algorithm. It would be nice if we could go back to the Yahoo model of where you would submit a website and an actual person uh, and an information professional, they had librarians, they would hire uh, library school graduates, would put it in the right place. I think what we can do is uh, to uh, start young. The University of Washington has an info literacy program where they want to start in the grade schools to get people to really be discerning and literate about what they're, what they're consuming. And we can also stop um, trying to make ourselves look or seem smarter than we are. Uh, one of my new uh, favorite authors is Jaron Lanier, uh, L-A-N-I-E-R. His first name is Jaron, J-A-R-O-N. He wrote uh, a book called You Are Not a Gadget, and he wrote his new book is called, uh, I think it's like The Internet Belongs to You or whatever, The Web Belongs to You. And his uh, battle, as articulated in an essay in The Edge, an online publication, is that we defer to the hive mind, uh, and we are looking at meta resources. So like Wikipedia is a meta resource that is edited by the hive mind, meaning it's good because it's crowdsourced. But in essence, it's not really good because it's crowdsourced. Right. There are many instances where uh, there has been false or, or damaging information that's been in Wikipedia. And if you want uh, some hilarious reading, he went after Wikipedia, and in the comments, the people who came out of the walls, Clay Shirky, Query Doctorow, um, Jimmy Wales, uh, Neil Postman, I mean, it's like a who's who of, of the net is a great place. 
So the net is a medium, it's a tool, and I think we need to be much more discriminating. And if you, you know, doing fact search is one thing, but if you do a search for the Holocaust or abortion or, um, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda, the resources that are presented as being most relevant are not always great. You have to really be discerning about People the don't. source. People don't. And they don't look at the source. Mm. And sometimes it's paid advertising, right? right? And you do have to go to the second page. Right. Um, sometimes it's going to download a virus. Right. So it's like, what is going to give me the answer, but what's going to give me the best most accurate, representative, relevant answer. Right. Well, and who's behind this? Yes. Especially with abortion. And uh, uh, Ian Lurie, my boss, uh, uh, volunteers his time for uh, uh, to help uh, suppress Holocaust deniers. You know, we invest a lot of um, confidence in Google's ability to surface relevant uh, information, but. Uh, it is not without its flaws. And so individuals who really aren't relevant uh, shouldn't be there. Kevin Slavin has a TED Talk where he talks about algorithms and how they are somewhat fragile. Uh, and he mentions an incident that happened in 2008 where a lot of our uh, stock trading is done by algorithm, a series of algorithms. And evidently in 2008 or nine or whatever, uh, they have what they called the flash crash of 2008 where literally the stock market watched as 9% uh, disappeared. It disappeared from the monitors, and they still don't know why. 9%, 9% of our 401ks, our mortgages, all of that just disappeared. Some algorithm ran into another algorithm, and they duked it out, and the money's gone. Wow. So... Well, um, to wrap it up, I'd oh. love to ask you, yes. um, I'd love to talk a lot longer, but um, I'd love to ask you, what advice would you give to people that are getting into the field of user research or search engine optimization, the young crowd? Right. You should try not to see yourself in any particular role. That, uh, and I think it was articulated by uh, Jorge Arango, that we real are, all of us are working in terms of maximizing the user experience. And you can focus on a core area, and certainly my core area is um, information architecture. That does not limit me from knowing about uh, search engines and how they work and trying to learn programming languages, not because I ever want to program. I went to Catholic school and I have a complete incapacity for mathematics. but. I understand that environment, and so I can now at least ask better questions, and I can understand the answers when they tell me, you know, that this is going to require a, a, a level of custom dev that, that helps me to make better decisions. Uh, and the other thing that's always helped me is I never felt confined uh, by my job description, that I was always looking to go beyond that to extend my role. Uh, into areas. The example being at Portant, I was hired in as a, a senior SEO specialist, uh, strategist, or whatever. 
And uh, I sat around and I was thinking, you know, how can we do this better? And we're going to develop a workshop series. And now it's become a series where I'm talking about how UX is the new SEO. One of my colleagues is putting together a DIY SEO for small businesses. I'm hoping my boss, Ian, will come out with a great correlation. So always look beyond where the medium is now and sort of, you know, the structure that has been built about your contribution. And what would you like your legacy to be? That um, I made people skeptical about Google, truly. We must be skeptical about Google. And I mean, I'm sure they're lovely men. Sergey uh, has donated $100 million for Parkinson's research. That's going to change the landscape. But we must never forget that it is a profit-based company that has an agenda that involves us behaving in a very specific way. And uh, I don't want to walk down the street wearing a computer. When, you know, I don't want to uh, have you uh, tailor my search results for a particular place and time. You know, I just don't want to be that lockstep. So be skeptical and respectful. Thanks to Steve Crosby for digital development, an original score piece by Cameron Michel. This episode is sponsored by WeWork. Meaningful conversations are essential to the success of every entrepreneur, freelancer, and small business owner. At WeWork, we consistently strive to make meeting new people and having interesting conversations natural and effortless. From the design of our workspace to the events at our buildings, we do everything we can to support the idea that if one of us is successful, we all benefit. Every WeWork location is staffed with community managers who work directly with members to understand their business needs, struggles, and growth plans, and connect them to other members who can help. Events are an integral part of the WeWork experience, from product launches to elevator pitches. Whether you're asking for advice, looking for product feedback, or just meeting like-minded entrepreneurs, WeWork.com is a seamless extension to the community. For more information, go to WeWork.com. That's WeWork.com. Go to WeWork.com slash UX Radio to receive a discount now. UX Radio is produced by Laura Federoff. If you want more UX Radio, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes or go to UX-Radio.com where you'll find podcasts, resources, and more.